Oh, a wise guy, eh? Indeed, he is a wise guy. He's Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball. And he's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. (laughs) Don. (laughs) Hey, Don. Tell Murray about the time you won the game when you slid into home play. Oh, Jagged rather not. I'm embarrassed. I don't blame you. (laughs) Tell me, did they ever find that catcher? Those pitchers try to hit you. You play baseball, and you got to stay in there because the guy throws a curveball at you. It may break across the plate, and your mind says, stay in there. But your body says, Let's, we got to move. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium. War Memorial Stadium. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 25th. It's show number six of the 2012 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League news will be brought to us by Harold Nichols, American League player analysis by columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about the proper use of average draft position information. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Rockies left-handed pitching prospect Drew Pomeranz. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about fitting together all those moving pieces during spring training. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Manny Ramirez is back in the big leagues. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League, but leading off the National League, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Nick, the big news in the National League this week was a new pitcher in Pittsburgh. A.J. Burnett comes over, the Yankees willing to pay him an awful lot of money not to pitch in New York. Pittsburgh takes advantage of it, but I wonder how big an advantage it is. Well, you know, the Yankees obviously trying to get rid of him. And if you look at uh, at results last year, 5.15 ERA, um, and <clears throat> pitched very badly on the road. I mean, ERA above six on the road. Uh, so the Yankees clearly wanted to get rid of him. Pittsburgh decides to uh, to take advantage. And, you know, you, you've got to look at what's going on here. I mean, uh, this guy's uh, – we've got a guy in his mid-30s whose skills are, are slowly declining, uh, has not produced very good results the past couple of years. So the question is, I guess, going to Pittsburgh, back to the National, back into the National League, who cares? But if you look very carefully, you'll, you'll find that 
in spite of the last two years of struggles with an ERA above five, A.J. Burnett's expected earned run average, 4.24 in 2010, 3.69 last season. So there's still something kind of good going on there. Uh, he still strikes out an awful lot of guys, a little bit of control problem, and the other problem has been a, a, a difficult last year home run per fly rate up at 70%. And certainly the move to Pittsburgh is going to help that. Uh, the Pittsburgh uh, is not going to give up nearly as many home runs uh, as uh, as the Yankees' uh, short porch did. Uh, so there may be something worth looking at as Burnett moves into Pittsburgh. Uh, certainly not a guy that um, whose reputation warrants uh, a, a top draft choice. But at the end of a draft, uh, you could do worse. Maybe a reserve-level pick or something like that. Maybe see how he's going to do in a, in a bigger park, in a new environment, maybe getting away from the New York media, always hounding him and stuff like that, a little lower-pressure environment in Pittsburgh. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, you know, the the, uh, the change in environment could make a big difference. There are there are lots of guys who just can't uh, pitch or play in that uh, in that that New York environment, and so that could make a big difference. And as I said, there are still some skills there. So uh, the kind of guy that you could pick up on a reserve pick or, or as a last pick in a draft who might actually turn into a decent season for you. Mind you, probably not going to be a lot in the way of wins. Uh, not not a real good ball club, although they do have a good bullpen. Right, very definitely. The bullpen is good, and so if he uh, if he actually has a lead when he leaves the game, there's a chance that they might be able to hang on to it. So, uh, But as you said, probably not a whole lot of wins uh, to go with it, but uh, might get an ERA. The other problem with Burnett is his uh, whip is not going to be real low. I mean, he walks enough batters that, uh, that even if he gets a decent hit rate, uh, his whip is going to be up there a bit. And that's also going to be exacerbated somewhat, Nick, by the fact that he's a nearly 50% ground ball pitcher, which, of course... Normally we like, but I'm talking to Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball a little later on in this show, and it's his opinion, and he's done a lot of research to back it up, that a high ground ball pitcher and a high fly ball pitcher are equally valuable but in different ways. And the problem with high ground ball pitchers is they give up a lot of hits, and uh, but their ERAs stay low because they don't give up so many home runs. In this case, Burnett seems to be the worst of both worlds, so caution is warranted. Right, very definitely. Speaking of pitching, uh, Atlanta went in looking like they had a very solid rotation into spring training. Now it looks like Tim Hudson's going to be out for at least a month, so uh, everybody's going to move up a slot. It would have been Hudson, Jurgens, and Hansen kind of co-number twos, Beachy number four, and number five to be determined. Now Hudson's done, so we're going to move everybody up a slot. But who does that leave for the number four and five spot? Mike Miner? Yeah, well, yeah, probably so. I mean, Miner probably was penciled in as the... Uh as the number five guy going into uh, into spring training for a couple of reasons. First of all, he's the only left-hander among the uh, the potential uh, rotation, and that kind of gives him a leg up. You you always like to have a left-hander in there somewhere that you can throw in, uh, depending on who you're playing. And so Miner uh, Miner looked good from that point of view. He he pitched very well for the Braves in August. Won three games, 3.02 expected earned run average. Struck out more than ten guys per nine innings, um, and had a solid September. He gave up a few too many home runs in September, but. Looked like he was probably the number five guy going into spring training. So I would say Mike Miner certainly has a leg up on one of those two slots. Another possibility is Randall Delgado. How do you like his chances of maybe forcing his way into the picture? You know, Randall Delgado is a guy who's going to be very, very good. Uh, Only uh, five September starts allowed only seven earned runs. Uh, The problem is he has a very low dom rate. Walks only strikes out about four guys per nine innings, and and his expected earned run average was up a four point eight nine uh, in his in his starts in Atlanta, so up a bit. So uh, results uh, were probably better than his skills last year. Uh, my guess is that with uh, 
with the low dom rate, uh, he probably is not going to fare as well in the competition uh, as some other guys. Kind of a, a Jared Jurgens type of pitcher, right? Low dom and, uh, and excellent control. Right, yeah, that that sort of thing. Although his control is not uh, isn't uh, as good as Jared Jurgens. I mean, Delgado had a one point one command ratio during that uh, that perf- performance in uh, in Atlanta last year. A little better in the minor leagues. What about uh, the big star, the big name everybody's looking at, Julio Tehran? You know, Julio Tehran is uh, is someone certainly to keep in mind. But results in Atlanta last year were not overwhelming. A five point one seven expected earned run average. Uh, giving up uh, a bunch of some home runs. Um, so it, it still made it a little more seasoning, uh, a little more experience to really be ready for the major leagues. I guess we'll see in spring training if he uh, seems to have settled down a bit from what he did in, in September of last year. Uh, but uh, certainly one of the most, uh, the arms you're going to watch a lot during spring training uh, in Atlanta. And he's got a real shot, I think, at making the number five spot in the rotation. Uh, but he still may have some work to do before he's ready to be the uh that, that number one starter that everyone expects him to be. Yeah, it seems uh, fairly likely down the road, 15 wins, 255, 118 at uh, AAA last year, and that's good numbers at any level of baseball. Of course, you have to translate it a little bit. The risk in grabbing one of these young guys with any kind of high pick, I think, Nick, is Tim Hudson is not dead. That's right. Tim Hudson is not dead. He'll be back uh, within a month or, or six weeks, so... Uh, Whoever you grab uh, to, to fill that number five spot uh, may find themselves uh, sitting on the bench or back in the minors uh, come uh, six weeks into the season. Likely are back in the minors. You'd think they'd want guys like Delgado and Tehran to be pitching uh, every five days, working on their game and stuff like that. A real long shot here seems to be Chris Medlin. Uh, does he have any chance at all, Nick? Yeah, I think he does. I mean, I think Chris Medlin is, is the guy probably everyone forgets about as they head into drafts. And, and the reason is he missed... Uh, uh, missed most of the season of last year following Tommy John surgery. Uh, he'll be 20 months beyond the surgery by opening day. Uh, and uh, pre-surgery, this guy had some real skills. So uh, uh, Medlin, if, if he – there's certainly going to be watching to see what Medlin does uh, in spring training. But uh, there's a real chance here that Medlin could, uh, in fact, grab that spot in the rotation and may have the skills to hang on to it if somebody else struggles. I mean, here's a guy that, uh, that two years ago had an ERA below four – uh, so uh, someone who to certainly watch and someone you might be able to sneak in at the end of a draft or with a reserve pick who could pay big dividends in the first part of the season. Yeah, 2010, he had a, a nice 368 ERA, and he was full value for it. His expected ERA was 374, which is right in line with that, and really good command ratio, four strikeouts for every walk, mostly because he had good control, but he also got seven strikeouts per nine. So Chris Medlin uh, may, may be a sneaky play here. Yeah, very definitely. I, a guy that most people are going to forget about. I mean, you tend to forget about guys coming back from TJ surgery very frequently, especially in drafts at this time of the year before their name starts popping up in spring training. So uh, someone to put on your on your uh, watch list if you're drafting soon uh, and certainly someone to, to keep an eye on during spring training. And finally, Nick, uh, we had a pretty interesting analysis of the Mets second baseman Daniel Murphy by Jeffrey Tomich of BaseballHQ.com, and he points out that Pretty much everybody in baseball knows this guy can hit, and the problem is, where is he going to play? He's a natural third baseman. Of course, they have David Wright over there, so he's going to be scrambling around. Maybe second base? Yeah, it looks like the, the Mets could, in fact, uh, slot him in at second base this year. And if he gets a, you know, getting a full season of bats, here's a guy who can hit 300. Not a lot of, uh, not a lot of power. I mean, just kind of average power. So he's not going to hit a lot of home runs for you. But, you know, 300 hitters are not, don't just grow on trees. So if you could get, uh, at, at the end of your draft, pick up a guy who's going to hit 300, uh, certainly worth doing. 
Yeah, the uh, last time he had a, a 500 at bat season back in '09, he only hit 277. He had 12 home runs though, which isn't bad. No, nope, not not bad at all. And so uh, you know, and uh, it looks as though his skills are actually a little bit better than that in terms of uh, of overall batting skills. The problem in uh, 2009 was he struggled against left-handed pitching. Hit only 223 uh, last season. Uh, hit almost 300 against left-handers. So he can hit left-handers. Uh, and if he gets uh, gets a chance to play full time and doesn't repeat that woeful uh, 223 batting average from 2009 against left-handed pitching, uh, here's a guy who could have some real value for you. On the other hand, uh, Jeff Tomich wraps up his analysis of Daniel Murphy by saying he won't hit home runs, steal many bags, or drive in a lot of runs. He'll pretty much be a, an empty average. So that's something you have to take into account. We always think that a guy who's going to get a lot of hits is automatically going to drive in a lot of runs. But if they're if he's a fairly low slugging type hitter, chances are the RBIs are not going to be as plentiful as you might like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely something to keep in mind and not a guy you want to be drafting early in your draft. Yeah, somebody to fill in at the end if you're in a deep draft. Uh, middle infield spots are always hard to find. Chances are he's going to get some time in there, which is better than drafting somebody who's not going to play. Very definitely. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. The big news, if you can call it that, was the resurgence or perhaps resurrection of Manny Ramirez, who signs as a free agent in Oakland. Is this anything to get uh, interested in? Well, there's always someone that wants a long shot, and this certainly is. It reminds me of Willie Mays going to the Mets. I mean, this is a guy who's 40 years old, past his prime. Uh, Part of his success, although we don't know what part, he's tested positive for PEDs, so he's going to be off the PEDs, we would imagine. He's been out of baseball for a while. He's going to have to sit out the first 50 games of the season. So he's going to be very rusty with declining skills. So uh, this is a you know long shot investment off the free agent wire at best. I was going to say the same thing. It, it, it's the kind of long shot. It's such a long shot that it's hard to imagine a league format where it would make sense to to waste a pick or to to uh, invest even a dollar in uh, in Manny Ramirez at this stage of his life. I mean, it could be that he comes back after 50 games and starts stroking the ball like 90, and then you're going to have to make a fab bid, but uh, it's hard to imagine any other way you get him on your roster. Well, I think a deep AL-only format, certainly you might want to take a flyer on him, but other than that, um, you know, you're really, or if you have a deep, inactive squad that you just want to stick him on there with a very end-game pick or a $1 fab bid at some point just to have the rights to him, and you can hold him then maybe, but that's about it. The other piece of news, maybe a bit more important, is that the Yankees, having looked over the field of guys like Hideki Matsui, Johnny Damon, former Yankees, have opted instead for a former Philly to take their left-handed DH role. Raul Abanez comes over from Philadelphia, also a fairly old player. Is this a guy that we should be more interested in? This is a really interesting when you have two proven Yankees, and Yankees tend to like to take care of their own, that still had something left to offer that they would uh, opt for Ibanez. On the surface, his batting average is only 245 last year. But he did hit more homers, 20 home runs. He had a higher power index of 123. The interesting is behind his batting average is his low hit rate was only 27% down from a career norm of about 31%. So his expected batting average was 289, and that's something the Yankees must have looked at it. Here's a guy that, even though he's getting older, his stills, his skills are still hanging on right now. And so they figured with his little 
power stroke, he can pull the ball down the line and maybe uh, get some more homers. I mean, Citizens Bank Park is a good home run park overall, but Yankee Stadium is, is even better, especially for left-handers, especially down that right field line. He did hit 16 out of his 20 home runs against right-handed pitching, and his slugging average was about 90 points higher or so. So he might fit in there well. It might be uh, might be worth a flyer. Of course, he does retain his outfield eligibility, at least for this year. Uh, Matt, so does uh, Carl Crawford, but the news is he's probably going to start the year on the DL, could miss up to a month with wrist surgery, and before we get to talking about Carl Crawford's bounce-back potential, why do you suppose they waited so long to have this wrist surgery? Why didn't they just do it right after the season? I don't know. They must have thought they could just rest through it or something. I don't know why you wouldn't do it right away. Uh, it's pretty easy as an athlete to know you have to be ready come April 1st. So you want to get any kind of surgeries taken care of as soon as you can after the regular season's over. Okay, so he comes back. Uh, he wants to show that 2011 was not the real Carl Crawford, but should we be buying that story? Well, I, he was a great bounce-back candidate for me, but now I'm a little leery. Wrist injuries are very fickle. You don't know what you're going to get. It's certainly going to sap his power, and you didn't buy Crawford for his power, but he's had a lot of double-digit home run years uh, in the past. He did provide a little bit of pop, but here's a guy who really pressed last year, and it showed. Whenever you see a guy changing scenes one way or the other, it's always a risk, and here's a guy trying to play up to his contract. He didn't run as much because he has a great lineup behind him in Boston compared to in Tampa Bay where they had to try to you know, fight and claw for every run. So his stolen bases dropped off, his speed index, and that was really you know, his opportunities. So I think this guy's a good athlete. I think he's going to come back. He's only 30 years old. Uh, his hit rate was artificially low last, last time at 30% in 2011. The two previous years it was 35%, so he's had a much higher rate. He was very impatient at the plate, only 4% walk rate. He was really pressing. His contact rate went down. It's a four-year decline in his contact rate. So a lot of things to be very wary of. Crawford, I would have said he's going to regress to normal. With this injury, that regression may happen in 2013, not 2012. The speed is a kind of skill that does not improve with age, generally speaking. So a large part of Crawford's value has always been the stolen base. And between the... uh, lack of need to steal bases that you pointed out there's also just he's getting older and he's going to not run as much yeah and it's something that like you said doesn't reverse course and uh he doesn't need to run as much there for the red sox to succeed if he can just get on base and field his position and and be that 300 hitter he would been in the past but for the fantasy owner who's looking at him as a key cog for stolen bases uh he's going to be stealing less and less as he gets older over in chicago the white sox gavin floyd had a pretty poor year in 2011 his era was not as good he had more losses than wins that's not such a big thing but there's some uh, silver lining in this dark cloud in the terms of gavin floyd's good skills this guy i think is one of my favorite bargains come draft day his era is on a four-year upswing so i think people are going to avoid him especially pitching in u.s cellular notoriously a high home run park especially for left-handed hitters his strikeout rate went down the last three years down to seven strikeouts per nine innings but his expected ERA has actually been below four each of the last three years. He's just been very unlucky. Uh, he improved his control last year, so his command, his strikeouts to walk, is 3.4, which is excellent. He had a great second half strikeout to walk-wise. It was 4.6. So even though his ERA was 4.5, his expected ERA was 3.24. This is a guy who's been getting very unlucky with his strand rate. He stranded an inordinate amount of runners last year, 65%. Normally that's around 70%. So that shows you that he's pitched much better 
than he's done on the surface. He's not going to be the anchor of your staff, but he very well could post an ERA of about three and a half, and he's lasting very long in most drafts because of his surface statistics. I know a lot of people looked at Gavin Floyd favorably coming into 2011 because in 2010 he had managed to increase his ground ball rate all the way up to 50%, and as a result had a lot fewer home runs. Last year that went back down to 44%, which is pretty much consistent with his track record over his career. It was 44% in the first half, 44% in the second half, 44% in 09, 42% in 07. So it looks like a 44% ground ball, sort of 35% fly ball. That's who this guy is, and that 50 is starting to look a lot like an anomaly. Yeah, it is, and I don't think you want to pick him. And again, in his park, if you have a daily league, you may want to watch him in the home park and pitch him more often in a road park. You'll get him so cheap you can afford to do that. But I think this is overall a solid skill set. Again, he's never going to be an ace, but he's going to be a solid pitcher you can put out there every day. He's going to strike out a decent amount of batters. If you have a whip category, he's not going to hurt that. He doesn't give up a lot of walks for a bat on base category either. Last year, one of the pleasant surprises in the American League was Jeff Francoeur outfielder who'd bounced around and uh, nobody thought much of him last year and here he had 20 home runs and 20 uh, stolen bases and a nice high uh, batting average so going into this year I expect a lot of people are going to be looking at him as an interesting candidate should they be as interested as they might be they should be very interested to throw his name out at auction because here's a guy who very much overachieved his surface stats went up heavily but his underlying skills are basically the same he hasn't gotten any more patient at the plate his walk rate and his contact rate are still below league average, but he had an elevated hit rate in 2011, and that's what's helped his batting average. His power index rose a bit, but his expected power index was consistent with his previous year. So he might get double-digit homers, but really last year was probably his peak. His base ceiling speed is just league average. He just had more opportunities. So we don't know if those opportunities will continue in 2012. Injuries could prohibit that, so I definitely wouldn't spend on his stealing ability. Definitely a guy who's probably going to be overrated in this year's draft. You know, Matt, uh, maybe I differ with you there on one thing, and that is I like a guy whose stolen base count goes up because he runs more. Unless Unless they change managers, it seems like a pretty good indication that he's going to get a chance, at least, to run in a subsequent year as long as everything else stays the same. And in Kansas City, it looks like everything else is pretty much staying the same. Well, I would agree with that. My only question is, we would, I would assume with 601 at-bats, he was really healthy last year. And if he gets a sore hammy or, you know, tweaks something, then he's going to tell the manager, hey, I can't run this week or next week. You know, I'll play, but I can't really steal as much. So that, to me, would put his stolen base opportunities at risk in that manner, uh, just assuming that he may not be healthy all of 2012 as he might in 2011. That's a fair point, but when I look at his at-bat record, uh, 2007, he had 642, then 599, 593, and 601 last year. The only outlier is 454 in 2010. It looks like he's a kind of a good, healthy ball player. Uh, I, I agree with everything you say, but I, I'm not as uh, pessimistic, I guess, about uh, Frank Coors stolen bases. Back to Boston now, Mark Melanson got signed, probably thought he had a chance at the closer role down there, and then they signed Andrew Bailey. So that kind of leaves Melanson with one of those setup roles. How does that affect his value, and would you be interested? It's going to be a great value come draft day. Bailey's, we talked about earlier, I think, in a previous show, that he has struggled with the long ball a little bit, and his uh, metrics were not nearly as good in 2011 as they had been in previous seasons. Melanson, on the other hand, has been increasing his strikeout rate to 8 strikeouts per nine innings in 2011. His uh, command two out of the last three years has been 2.4 or higher. Uh, He's got himself back under control, and his ground ball rate 
It was 57% in 2011 and 62% in 2009. So he has the ground ball abilities, and that's going to be really important when you play a lot of games in Yankee Stadium and some of the other AL East ballparks like Camden Yards. He had a high strand percent last year. His expected ERA says, you, you know, expect a little bit of a correction. He may be more of an ERA around three instead of 278. But he has, definitely has very good skills, and he's the kind of middle reliever that you can get really cheap that has the potential for saves, whether it be injury, Bailey struggled with some elbow issues the last couple of years, or skills. Although I like Bailey, his skills did take a dip in 2011. We expect them to come back in 2012, but reality is they may not. And if that's the case, they're not going to wait too long in Boston to try to give the guy who can, you know, they can't afford to lose too many games after last year. They're not going to be a lot less patient with their closer than they might ordinarily. You mentioned the high strand rate, 79%. The year before, it was 78, including some minor league equivalents. But we've uh, had some research at BaseballHQ.com that suggests that the 70% strand rate uh, normal level really applies more to starters than it does to relievers. It's not that unusual for a reliever to be able to carry a 78, 79, 80% strand rate year over year because they just don't pitch as often, and so they can really bear down. Well, and they're coming in with runners on base, not their own runners on base. I think a, a guy named Davitt did that research, if I remember correctly. I've never heard of him. <laughs> and finally, Matt, uh, low contact rate really is the bugaboo for Mike Carp, uh, Seattle outfielder slash first baseman. Um, he seems kind of blocked in a few areas. What do you think of Mike Carp as an endgame type guy? Well, this guy has some pop in his bat. He struggled first time up in the majors driving the ball. But uh, he can really, if he gets a hold of it, his power next is 135, and that's a three-year upward trend. Problem is you don't know if he's going to make contract, 73%, and his walk rate has declined the last couple of years. I think this is one of those uh, guys, he's in this growth phase of his career at 25. He had a very high line drive rate last year at 25%. His batting average is probably a little bit at risk, but he does have some pop, and, and these are the kind of guys that you just never know. They either get it and become a very solid player, or they just can't adjust, and they end up back in AAA, and you never hear from them, or they become this, this quad A player that, that just sort of hangs around and never quite gets another opportunity. Carp uh, is a very low risk, because he's probably going to late in the draft, high upside, you know, or high up, I think I said that wrong, high risk opportunity. You're going to get him late in the draft, he could be great, or he could be awful. But if you get him late enough, that price will... Uh, be affordable and so there could be some profit there and especially in leagues where you can replace a guy like this relatively easily a shallower league you know a 15 mixed or an 18 mixed or something like that his biggest problem is he's going to have a lot of competition for that playing time they got Trayvon Robinson breathing down his neck uh, they got some other guys in the mix there in left field all vying for that playing time it's not like it's a clear-cut opportunity for Carp. no exactly right Matt you'll have your market pulse commentary a little later on in this edition of baseball HQ radio what's your topic this week we're going to talk about how to properly use average draft position data. There's been a lot of talk about it. We're going to talk about how to use it properly as you enter your draft. All right, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you again in a week. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Gene McCaffrey, author of Wise Guy Baseball, coming up next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Now who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Oh, what is on second? You know what? Who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base! <laughs> Look, you got outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing? First. I'm not staying out of the infield. <laughs> I want to know who's playing 
know what's the guy's name in left field. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, one of the minor league analysts at Baseball HQ. I'm also the co-author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors. Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the Analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012 and at the same time an online update of the top 50 fantasy prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined uh, for the second time in the last couple of years by the wise guy of baseball himself. It's Gene McCaffrey. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's nice to be back in the land of a sophisticated listener. (laughs) And uh, indeed, our listeners are sophisticated, and they're going to look forward to hearing from you today and then, of course, in Wise Guy Baseball itself. And before we get started talking about some of your theories and some of your writing, and especially some of the players, maybe you could tell us how long you've been publishing Wise Guy Baseball Annual, and how'd you get started? 1996 was the first year. I skipped only one year when... uh, my wife was having a baby, and I didn't have time to uh, to devote to give it the proper time to devote to it. Other than that, it's been continuous, and it started because um, back at that time there were a lot of people playing the uh, the challenge games, uh, was the Baseball America Challenge, Sporting News Challenge, and there was nobody writing about it. And I had played um, I played the games and found I was pretty good at them, so I decided to uh, to write about it and. Wise Guy Baseball developed over that. I still write about the challenge games, but now I've expanded to uh, to rotisserie and auctions and drafts. How did you get started with fantasy baseball itself? Well, I've mean, always been a big baseball fan, and a, a part of the culture at the office that I was working at at the time was lots of big baseball fans. And somebody had read something, I guess it was the uh, Sports Illustrated piece about rotisserie with Dan Okrent and Glenn Wagner in that league, and we decided that we were going to do this in our office. So we sort of custom-designed our own league and had a draft and uh, had a lot of fun doing it. And then I moved out of New York into Colorado, and I was kind of lonely and by myself when I saw this ad for this, you know, the CDM Sporting News Challenge, and I looked at it and I said, I can beat this. And as I say, it did pretty well, and uh, very well, actually, and so... And it came, I want to write something about this, so I did. Sent out a bunch of copies. John Hunt gave me a great review in the USA Today. The next day I sold 300, and that put me on the map. Then later on he invited uh, my partner John Mena and I to play in labor. And I'd never been in a rotisserie auction before in my life. Labor was the first one I ever did. And, uh, and we won. The reading experience of Wise Guy Baseball's unlike almost any other publication that's out there for fantasy owners in that not only is there a lot of wisdom but it's quite 
personal in style. You're a funny guy, and it comes across in the writing. There's a lot of lot of good lines in there, a lot of fun in the reading. Has that always been a part of the wise guy baseball philosophy? Yes. I don't know how to do it any other way. Um, that's just what comes out, and people can read the uh, the bare facts anywhere. Um, I think that my job is to bring them together, find the anomalies, find what doesn't fit, see if we can figure out why it doesn't fit, and if there's an advantage that we can get, and just to do it in a, in a way that I would like to read it. Speaking of philosophy, Gene, you wrote in the book, and I quote, statistics are a beautiful thing, using all those numbers to figure out things that are true, but the world doesn't want to know. The world wants one number. What did you mean by that? You know, to get through the day, we all suffer from information overload. And I'm not criticizing the human race, because we have to take things for granted. We need assumptions, and otherwise we wouldn't make it through the day. But to reduce baseball statistics to one number is not the way to advance our knowledge. In fact, it's a step in the opposite direction. To me, what makes statistics great are how many there are and how they interrelate with each other. And total bases versus fly balls, the infinite variety of baseball statistics that actually tell us things that we need to know, rather than reducing everything to wins above replacement or OPS plus or whatever it happens to be. Um, I don't think that's the way to do it. I think that's the, and I think it's lazy to do it that way. And the people who do do it that way are asking to lose and we should beat them. And in fact, we often do the, the, uh, magazines in a lot of instances the the biggest thing you see when you turn to a player's little box with a few it has a few words some standard statistical information and then a great big dollar value and it's like you go into they they want those people to go into the draft and that's a $15 player and not, there's not a lot of nuance in that approach no there isn't and uh you know we have to do it when we're in the auction we have to put one number on a player but we ought to realize that this is not advancing our knowledge at all. It's just something, it's a form of convenient shorthand. Um, I, I, I think that numbers have value. You know, wins above replacement is great if you're comparing a hitter to a pitcher, if you're trying to evaluate a trade six years down the road. But that's what it is. It's shorthand, it's a convenience, and it's not something that that should be set in stone and adhered to as if it were a you know, biblical truth. Later on, Gene, you write in uh, Wise Guy Baseball 2012, human history reveals an ultra-ironic truth. The most hidebound, orthodox, undeviating group on planet Earth is always the scientific establishment. And I'm wondering, is that a dig kind of at the fantasy baseball establishment and the baseball establishment that it's really hard to get them off their orthodoxies? It is indeed. Um, Of course, we're not on the same exalted level of importance in the world, but it's a, it's something that smart people are prone to, um, especially smart people. Um, they learn things, and they sort of stick to it, and then because they're smart, they sort of assume that they know everything, and we don't really know anything. Um, so that's part of my job is to is to knock that down, to knock down the orthodoxy, think outside, do what you do what you can to see the way things are, because that's how you're going to win, especially in today's game where everybody has a lot of information. Um, if we don't realize what that information means, we put ourselves at a disadvantage. If we lock ourselves into orthodoxy, again, we're asking to lose. 
You said at the outset, Gene, that one of the reasons you got involved in fantasy baseball was when you saw the Diamond Challenge, um, the challenge-style game. And you said uh, this year in Wise Guy Baseball that it's still, in your opinion, the best fantasy game. And I'm wondering why you say that even after all these years. Because you can react to reality. Especially this time of year, we're all we're preparing and we're doing our darndest to learn everything we can about the players. But we know that once the season starts, a lot of our preconceptions are just going to blow away in, rea- in the winds, the buffeting winds of reality. Um, the CDM Challenge Games enable you to deal with reality as it happens and as it is happening. Um, the most simplest um, example would be injuries. Um, you have a big injury to uh, to one of your high-dollar players. Your season is, if not over, just about over. Whereas in CDM, that's just an inconvenience. You drop them, you pick up somebody else who is, in theory, just as good. The injury becomes, rather than something that hurts you, it becomes an opportunity for you to exercise more skill. And I think that, that that's what makes it a better game to me. Um, and not that I have anything, all the games have their advantages, but I think that it's as pure, if you're looking to to see which game best tells you who knows the most about baseball, I think it's the, the challenge games. And I know I'm in a, that's a minority opinion, by the way. I know a lot of people don't like them because, because of the, ex, the non-exclusive ownership factor. But to me, there are other leagues where you can own players exclusively, and in this, you know, if it's the right, if he's the right guy to have, it doesn't bother me that eighty that eighty percent of the people have him. I'll beat them somewhere else. Talking baseball with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. Gene, you also wrote that the NFBC, the big national tournament, is maybe not the best game, but you find it the most fun. And I'm wondering why that is. Because it's such a, because it's a great event. That's why um, walking in there is no feeling um, walking into that huge room in the Bellagio and knowing that you're going to sit down and you're competing with 400 people who really know what they're doing you're competing against the best um, there's, a, there's a social function to it, we, we see each other we know each other, we talk about what we like and what we don't like and you know a lot of us are sort of on our own in this you know our spouses really don't want to hear about um, the chance that um, Chad Billingsley's going to come back this year, they're not interested in things like that um, but we are interested in that. It's nice to have somebody to talk to face to face rather than over email or on a on a website. So there's a social aspect to it too, and it's just the feeling that you're sitting down and you're competing against the best players. And to me, there's nothing that beats that. In your uh, Wise Guy Baseball 2012, Gene, you wrote that you have a general rule that you that a good player should save twenty seven dollars for the last nine players on the roster. What's your thinking? Why why twenty seven dollars? Why nine players? It's a it's a general um, guideline. I don't you don't have to follow it strictly, but the nine players comes from the fact that the, the other fourteen players that you have are the core of your team. The nine players left are how you're filling out. The $27 comes from what that enables you to do is it enables you, and usually at that point in an auction there aren't very many, if any, uh, regular players or good pitchers left. Um, so what that enables you to do is if you do want one of those guys, you can bid them up into the mid-teens and still have enough money left to to bid $2 if somebody tries to sneak somebody by, or bid $3 if you've bid a dollar and been topped. 
Um, I think that's really important in the end game um, because we all have players that we like and we want to get them. And I think that that, structurally speaking, that, that enables you to to have the flexibility to do what is required to fill out your roster at that point. Gene, I'm wondering if it's the same thing in a mixed league versus a single league league. And the reason I ask is I'm in the mixed tout wars this year, along with you, I believe. And uh, looking at the way the roster's set up, it seems like there might be, because of the greater availability of players, that you might have a little more flexibility in, a, in allotting money at the late stages of the draft because you're still going to be getting good players, probably starters and regulars. Yeah, I, I think that it's important in both kinds of leagues, if anything, a little more important, as you say, in mixed leagues, where the player pool is bigger. You know, uh, one of my big things about mixed league auctions is that they are not rational events because the player pool is too deep. Uh, but to me, the crime at a, at a mixed league auction is not paying uh, $55 for Matt Kemp. It's paying 12 or $13 for an average major league regular. There are a lot of those guys who are going to be available at the end of a mixed league draft. And there are going to be some that we like more than others. It is crucial, I think, to be able to bid 2 3 $4 for those guys. So you're not overpaying for them at all, but you're getting the guys that you want, and you're designing your own team. So yes, I think it's very important to do that. Even though I tend, in a mixed league auction, I tend to spend a lot of money early, and then I shut up until the end game. Not entirely, but that's basically usually the way it goes with me. Talk about your approach to the stolen base and saves categories. I found this pretty interesting in this year's edition. You talked about this concept of semi-dumping. Yeah, now I never go into an auction planning to dump a category. Um, I think it's too inflexible a strategy. But stolen bases and saves are the categories that have really the least to do with baseball knowledge. They're the least predictable, I think. It's a every year tons of stolen bases and saves come into the league that nobody drafted. And the, and it's because the, these things are unknowable at the start of the season. I think I uh, figured out that of the top 45 base stealers last year, 19 of them were either undrafted or very late drafted. That's going to happen this year, too. Um, so the concept of semi-dumping means to try to get about half the points that you can get in those two categories without ever reaching for the guy, without overpaying for a guy. I'm not saying don't get a closer. I'm not saying don't draft speed early in a draft. Do it. But do it when it's attached to something else. Don't limit yourself. Speculate in the late rounds. And if you do that intelligently, you should be able to get about half the points that you can get in those two categories while maxing out on the other eight. And uh, it, it works. I mean, you can get burned doing it like any other strategy. One of the things I, I was saying just the other day to somebody is, you show me a strategy, and I will show you a first-place team and a last-place team using that strategy. It's all about the players, always will be. But as a structural approach, I think it's good not to be too concerned about saves and stolen bases going into your draft or auction. Is that equally true for 4x4 four four formats as it is for 5x5, five five, or do you have to be a little more cognizant with the one fewer category on each side in 4x4? Four four? I, I think it's less true in 4x4 in, in four four, um, because you know they're 12.5% of the game, those two categories. Um, I still don't like to overdo it, 
Um, and also, you know, I, I'm sure that all, all the listeners are aware of this, that especially saves, they have been way devalued over the last few years, as they should be. People are getting smart to the fact that you don't have to be that good to get saves. Um, that when you invest in a big-time closer, he gets hurt and you're down the drain. That if you you draft the closer and you draft his backup, how many times does a third guy take over the job in July that nobody had ever even considered in March? So saves continue to be devalued. That's a good thing. Um, but we we still have to you know we still have to get some, but we don't want to overpay for anything, especially for a category that's unpredictable like that. Um, at draft, Gene, how much attention do you pay? What all the other teams are doing? how much stats they're amassing in what categories as you calculate your own tactics. Do you have a plan that you stick to, or are you very flexible at draft when you see somebody looks like they're uh, really loading up on the home runs? Do you have to adjust on the fly? Well, I'm the one who's usually loading up on the home runs. Um, and no, I don't pay a lot of attention to what they're doing because I, it's hard enough to, to figure out your own team. And I really don't have that much brain power that I can figure out what other guys are doing. And it doesn't matter, Patrick, because what matters is what your guys do. And you have to maximize your own team. And I think that all my efforts, sometimes you notice that somebody, oh, so-and-so is dumping saves or so-and-so is really loading up on speed or batting average or or power. But to me, it's just something to note in passing. It's not something that I focus on because I have to worry about my team, and I'm trying to accumulate categories there, and that's that's a hundred percent of it to me. Do you draft to targets? Do you have a going in have an idea how many home runs you want, how many wins you want, and try to draft accordingly, or are you just drafting good players? I know that I want power uh, because home runs are four category events. I know that I want a solid pitching base, but I don't I don't have it um, down to the decimal. I try to keep a, a rough idea. I know what I'm accumulating as I as I go along, and I have a, a good idea of what I'm doing. Um, but I'm not saying I need to get five more home runs. Um, I'm just trying to balance. I'm trying to get the best players and then fill out as we go. Uh, there's a lot of good late options, uh, no matter what categories you're looking for. And so I get as solid a, a foundation as I can with as little injury risk as possible, and then in the late in the later stages of the draft, that's when I start to take my risks. Do you use a, a laptop? Or... I don't, and it was it, it was um, an occasion of amusement at the last um, Tower Wars auction that I did not. Only Nando and I did not have laptops, and I was I didn't want to tell them I did not even have a price list because I believe that there is no rational pricing structure. So what good is it to me to have a price list? I do have the players ranked, and within the rankings I have a sort of tier system. You know, I'd be happy with one of these guys, with one of these guys, you know, as the levels go down. But to me, in a mixed league auction, to say that so-and-so is worth $27 and so-and-so is worth $32 is irrational. So so I, I guess I'm kind of old school in that uh in that regard, but I do, you know, it's not like I'm not paying attention. It's just a different kind of paying attention. I like to, um, if I can borrow a, a phrase from Laura Michaels, I take a more Zen-like approach. I try to look at the whole, the whole team, what I have, what I need, how I'm going to about 
to go about getting it. Gene, we were going to talk about a bunch of batters and pitchers from Wise Guy Baseball 2012, but we're kind of running out of time. Can you come back again in a week and we'll go, go over them then? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Uh, before we let you go for this week, uh, let people know how they can find out more about Wise Guy Baseball. Best thing to do is to go to wiseguybaseball.com. That'll give you the phone number to call. Um, please call it. I always uh, it's forty dollars. That includes shipping, and I offer you your money back if not utterly floored or at least mildly taken aback. All right, Gene. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks, Patrick. That's Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball, and he'll be back again next week. This is Baseball HQ Radio. I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Mantle, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with his master notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com Minor League expert Rob Gordon telling us about Rockies left-handed pitcher Drew Pomerantz. The Colorado Rockies' Drew Pomerantz is already starting to generate some nice buzz this spring. The 23-year-old was the fifth overall pick in the 2010 draft and was acquired by the Rockies as part of the Ubaldo Jimenez trade last July. The talented lefty has plus raw stuff that includes a very good 90-95 mile an hour fastball, a plus curveball, and a changeup that shows nice potential, though it does need some work still. In addition to having good stuff, Pomerantz has an advanced feel for pitching and understands how to set up hitters effectively. Pomerantz got off to a very impressive professional debut last year. In 20 minor league starts, he was 4-3 with a sparkling 1.78 ERA, walking just 38 while striking out 139. He also did a very good job of keeping the ball in the park and yielded just three home runs in 101 innings. Pomerantz did struggle in four late-season starts with the Rockies, going 2-1 with a 5.40 ERA, but he has already earned high marks from Rockies pitching coach Bob Apodaca for his stuff and poise and will get a chance to win a spot in the Rockies starting rotation this spring. Pomerantz was one of the first players from the 2010 draft to reach the majors and has a chance to make a significant impact in 2012. Yes, rookie starting pitchers are inherently risky, but those in deep NL-only leagues should not be afraid to roll the dice on Drew Pomerantz. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corton. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During spring, Rob Gordon has organizational reports and other scouting columns, and Jeremy Deloney has reports on top prospects, including this week's look at top first base prospects. During the season, they have prospect updates, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, well, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. 
Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about the proper use of average draft position. A lot of experts are talking a lot about average draft position. They're criticizing this crucial piece of information as being overused and often even irrelevant. As someone who writes a column each week based on average position values, comparing the public's values to our projections here at Baseball HQ, I guess I'm a little taken back by that and want to reiterate that we think average draft position is very important, but it's often misused. Remember, average draft position is an average of when the player's been selected. It's not reflective of your draft and the managers picking in your league. The proper way to use average draft position is, first of all, if you have a player that you've targeted that you really want to get, you want to look at the earliest round he's been drafted, not his average. That way you ensure you roster him, but you don't take him too early compared to what others may think of that player. The second way you use average draft position is to look at the average when you want to break a tie. You're torn between two or three players. You're trying to determine which ones you should take. You can at that point assess the likelihood of which one would drop to you to your next draft position and which one will probably go now. What you don't do is develop your whole draft list by average draft position because then you're just going to reflect everybody else's opinions, not your own. So use the great information provided by average draft position to understand what others in your similar position are thinking, but don't use them as gospel. Look at the earliest round someone has been drafted if you're targeting the player. And if you want to break a tie between two or three options, then decide to take the one with the earliest ADP or average draft position because the other ones are more likely to drop to you in the next round. For the Market Pulse and Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about fitting together all the moving pieces during spring training. As spring training gets into full swing, one area of major focus for most of us is getting a handle on how roles and playing time are going to shake out. It's a fun and challenging exercise to see how all the pieces are going to fit. Veterans, rookies, prospects, non-roster invites, nearly 2,000 players all trying to find a spot on a 25-man roster on one of 30 teams. Heck, it's like watching the shakeout on American Idol. Needless to say, this is important for us fantasy leaguers. We need to know who is going to get the playing time. That playing time is going to drive our player projections, which is going to drive our dollar values and rankings, which is going to drive our draft day behavior playing time projections are incredibly important. That's why we're trying to figure out who is going to play second base in Baltimore. What's going to happen if Miguel Cabrera can't play third base in Detroit? Who is going to play center field in Texas? Who is going to get most of the catching at-bats in Cincinnati? Who is going to play first base in Milwaukee? What's going to happen if Ike Davis is not ready? If Ryan Howard takes too long to heal? And on, and on, and on. There are dozens of questions. The problem is we crave answers that simply don't exist. Not now for sure. By opening day, there will be some answers and possibly more questions. During the season, there will be more answers and even more questions as players streak, slump, surprise, disappoint, and get hurt. Let's face it, there is no such thing as a finite projection for playing time. Consider these facts. 
50% of baseball's top 300 players will spend some time on the disabled list this year, thereby opening up playing time for someone else. 70% of the surprise performances this year will come from players who backed into unexpected playing time. So perhaps the only way to truly project playing time is to be able to project who is going to get hurt and how severely. Well, we're not there yet, and probably won't ever be close enough to predict tomorrow's strained hamstrings, concussions, or broken wrists. Which is all a long roundabout way of saying that we need to keep our expectations flexible. Yes, we should follow the news and see who might win jobs, but we should not be building rosters with the assumption that these are fixed, finite events. On the off chance that Matt Antonelli wins the second base job in Baltimore, we should not treat that as a 500 at bat certainty. On the off chance that Leonis Martin breaks camp with Texas, we should not assume that he will eventually become a full-timer because we like his upside so much. And if Ryan Howard does come back in early May, we should not be mindlessly penciling in five months of at-bats as if there was no more risk to his health. I've been tempted to call the process of projecting playing time an inexact science, but really, for a good 50% of the player population, it's much closer to being a pure crapshoot. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler shoots the crap every week in a column that appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about his personal first round. Ron also discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also gives us his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 25th. Show number six of the 2012 fantasy baseball season goes into the record books, and we do appreciate that you took the time to download and listen to the show. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and if you can, take a second and go to iTunes and give us those five stars that we need. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Gene McCaffrey, the author of Wise Guy Baseball. It's always a pleasure to talk with Gene, one of the truly nice guys in this business and a guy who really knows his stuff. I also want to thank our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, who was also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator, as always, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Neil Fitzgerald's look at the experimental Roto 350 draft and hold format, Alex Becky's essay on the art of the draft, and NFBC head Greg Ambrosius has a free report on how speed kills if you don't have it. Plus our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, and buyer's guides. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com is on spring training question marks. It's on the site now, and so is my research essay on hard hit ball data for pitchers. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Be sure to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with part two of our conversation with the wise guy of baseball and great guy Gene McCaffrey on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, 
It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.